We are so delighted to have uh, Brother Jody Wells with us today. Um, he is the senior pastor of the church in Titusville. He's been pastor since 2007. Uh, he is the Florida District Men's Director. He is also part of the Cuba Impact Team, and uh, he is, serves as the leader there. He's a family builder. He's a soul winner. And uh, this guy has a very interesting background that uh, I, I just find that he has so many strengths, in part because of uh, not only his temperament but because of his background. He was employed by NASA for 16 years, and he served as contract manager, new spokesman. He was a liaison to the um, governor of Florida, and um, so he just has a lot of experience in the uh, secular realm and has served on a very high level, and I appreciate that so much about him. His wife is Christy, been married for 14 years, and father to uh, Dave 10 and Judah 6, and uh, I have a, I consider Brother Jody Wells a great personal friend. I have a lot of respect for him. I consider him one of our uh, premier young pastors, a man who's getting things done, a man who has a heart for excellence and on a local level is, is having revival and has put together an incredible team and has developed a culture of expectation uh, in his local church and among his leaders, and I just respect that so very much. And when I was considering the topic, of personal discipline, um, Brother Jody Wells came to mind. And I believe that outside of the spiritual disciplines and the working of the Holy Spirit, probably personal discipline has a greater impact than, than just about anything else. And uh, personal discipline can either open up your life and ministry or it can, put a, it can place a lid on your life and ministry. And so, uh, Brother Wells, thank you so much for taking time with us today. And uh, I want to get right into our, our conversation. Um, in your words, what exactly is personal discipline? Uh, thank you, Brother Soto. And, and uh, I'm honored and quite a bit humbled to be on the call and asked to speak on these issues, as, as you'll probably find as we talk, that I have a, a great deal of work to do yet on personal discipline. But um, nevertheless, we'll try to get right to the point. Um, understanding what God's purpose is for your life, I mean really understanding specifically what God's purpose is for your life, and then following a process, not just pursuing that purpose, but, but developing or finding from God or finding from the Word what the process is that puts you on the path to that purpose, and then accomplishing that purpose by executing specific elements on a daily basis. Everything oh, we do powerful. comes Executing down to personal. How did you say that again for us? Basically, Executing. what God's purpose for your life is, following a process that accomplishes that purpose, and executing the elements of that process on a daily basis. That's good. So um, I think what we would emphasize here is is daily it's it's a daily thing you know we're great we love to make decisions but we don't manage them very well so uh brother wells in in your life what what has personal discipline 
meant to you? What does personal discipline mean to you? Well, it, it comes down, of course, to my, my purpose um, and understanding very early on, even before I was married, long before I was married, my father and mother and my family instilled in me that uh, if I was to be successful at being a husband, being a father, that um, I could go to judgment and go on to eternal life, pleased that I was a success in life. Don't misunderstand. At that time, of course, I had no idea I would be called to be a preacher or a pastor. But still, I place uh, my role as husband and father um, at the chief uh, position and then as a minister. And so to directly answer your question, what is personal discipline to me? Becoming the husband, the father, and the minister that God has called me to be. And again, becoming that through a faithful execution of daily commitments, commitments that I've made to God, commitments that I've made to my family members individually, not just generic. I think generic is a huge enemy of personal discipline, being very specific with both God and my family members as to what my commitments are. It's only specificity that can be held in accountability. Okay. And, you know, that's so important for us to remember that we command a lot of strength and energy for the ministry. And sometimes we don't take that same idea of discipline and, and, and that systematic and intentional effort and, and leveraging it towards our family. Um, well, now we're obviously addressing the subject of personal discipline today because it's a problem that many of us deal with. Um, talk to us about why personal discipline is so critical in, in the work of ministry. Well, specifically for pastors um, and, and preachers, simply put, we are commissioned by Christ to make disciples. And, of course, disciple is the root of discipline. And so, if you would put it in other words, we are commanded, commissioned, and employed by God to develop people into disciplined followers of Christ. And so if we can't be disciplined on a personal level, how can we ask them to be? How can we teach them to be? And, and really, at the end of the day, if we don't have personal discipline, making it plain, brethren, if I can be uh, abrupt, we're hypocrites. If we are pastors, preachers, and leaders that are not personally disciplined but then demand personal discipline of those that we have been commanded to disciple. Maxwell made a statement uh, that we uh, teach what we know, but we reproduce what we are. Mm. And so that is so true that, you know, if, ultimately that's probably what we're going to reproduce then. Um, and, and it's so true that that's what we're looking to, to develop. We want to grow people who um, make prayer part of their daily life and the word and um, committing themselves sacrificially to, to kingdom efforts. Um, so do you think that some people struggle with personal discipline because they weren't raised in a culture of personal discipline? What, how do you feel about that? Absolutely. I think that comes to play. But, you know, as pastors, we deal with people that come from all different walks of life and, I think the research reveals it, and I think just our personal experience would prove that um, 
that undisciplined environment can have an opposite effect too. I mean, let's consider a person that's raised in an alcoholic home. They can go either way. I mean, you see the numbers, and usually there's nobody in between. If they were raised in a raging alcoholic's home, they either become a raging alcoholic themselves or they're a teetotaler that won't get anywhere near alcohol. So really, you could grow up, and, and I say that from personal experience, you can grow up in an environment that isn't ultra-disciplined, and that could actually push you toward becoming disciplined. Rather than using that as a cop-out, uh, well, I never had any structure or discipline in my home, well, let's look at those that are affected by that in a positive way. Personally, I grew up in a home with basic Christian disciplines and life disciplines. What I mean by that is church, school, jobs. These were things that were in your life. They were real. You were, you were faithful to those things. You were disciplined to do those things. But even though that was good discipline, it was very reactive discipline. It wasn't very strategic. And in my life growing up, I love my mother and father. They're the best parents on the planet. But there was very little strategic discipline in our home. We were reactive in our disciplines, which is good. But it's not when you're a pastor and a vision caster. So my family's reactive approach actually pushed me to become proactive. Uh, and, and I see reactionary living, in other words, waiting on life to happen to me, as a very undisciplined even if I'm on time for work every day, even if I, you know, pay the bills every month, I, you know, that's reactionary discipline. And therefore, I push myself to another level, which is strategic discipline. That's good. So I just want to seg- I just step away for a second and, and just ask you the question. Um, how, did, how did you internalize this desire? How did this come to how did this come into shape for you? Well, um, to be to be very honest and um, and transparent, um, I was a Sunday school teacher at 16 and grew up. My father was the Sunday school superintendent, and at that young age, coming to his monthly meetings, uh, which were a form of discipline, um, the meetings were not disciplined. They were not conducted with any great agenda or strategy, which I must say, uh, Brother Soto demonstrates an extreme amount of personal discipline in that in that regard. I'm I'm thoroughly impressed by him. Every time I encounter anything he works with or puts his hands on, but in not as a as a young teenager that was growing up and developing my own opinions, I was watching these meetings, and uh, the one thing is I noticed uh, my father being walked on being walked on by the, the more vocal. He was a very quiet person, uh, good, good, faithful doer, but not a very strategic uh, leader. And that, that just wasn't his gifting. I don't, I don't look at that as a negative per se. It just isn't his gifting. But he was placed in this position because of faithfulness, but yet in those meetings he would be walked on by the more vocal teachers that were subordinate to him. Uh, they would pursue rabbit trails in their discussions that would not stay on point. Um, and it would frustrate me to no end. And I watched that, and, and it, was, it was not a positive internalization. It was a very negative internalization. And I would ask my dad about it in private. Dad, why do you let those folks walk on you? Why did you let them take that conversation off the left field? You know, why, and, and we had talks about it, but he was just a very uh, quiet, meek, and, and humble man 
which I, I strive to pursue more of those attributes, but sometimes quiet, meek, and humble doesn't get it done, if I can just be transparent. And it, it was an internal conflict in me that pushed me that I would never find myself in that situation if I was called on to lead. Okay. Um, from your from your perspective and your biblical worldview, what does the Bible have to say about about personal discipline? What does the Word have to say to you? How does it speak to you? Oh man, if, if there was a book of the Bible that could be renamed, it would be Proverbs. It could be re- it could be called Discipline, chapter twenty five, verse twenty eight. I mean, uh, Proverbs twenty five twenty eight. He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. I mean, basically the Bible's telling us if you don't have self-discipline, then you leave, you leave yourself open for attack. You are vulnerable for an enemy's attack. Uh, and, and Proverbs goes on, uh, goes back, 1532, he that refuseth instruction despiseth his own soul, but he that heareth reproof getteth understanding. This is a little bit different take on discipline in the Bible is not just me being disciplined in my duties and my tasks, but being willing to be disciplined. Taking yeah. that word uh, beyond just my own self-accountability to allowing somebody to step in my grill and say, you dropped the ball, and, and allowing myself to be disciplined, to be corrected. Um, you know, and, then, and then you go on to 1 Corinthians 9 and 27 in the New Testament. I think we would all agree one of the most disciplined men in the Bible, Paul, uh, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. And I think we're really quick to look at that passage and say it's talking about Paul losing his soul. But I like the New Living Translation take on this because they take the connotation of the Greek into consideration. It's, it's like this in, in, the, in, the, uh, in, in that version. I discipline my body like an athlete, Paul says, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Um, Now, I'm not saying that it couldn't refer to Paul's salvation. We can obviously lose our soul uh, being weary and well-doing. But the metaphor that Paul uses here to the Hellenistic Greeks in, in Corinth is an athletic pursuit, and that requires training. Self-discipline does not come easy, Paul is saying. And I think what the Bible is getting across is it requires constant work, and most often professional and Olympic athletes have to secure a coach. And they don't go pick a coach that is lame like they are or is weak like they are. They find somebody who has mastered or shown excellence in that particular sport, and you know, that's what we need. We need somebody to hold us accountable to our disciplines, someone who has mastered that discipline, not someone who's going to commiserate with us or cajole us and struggles with the same things that we do. Obviously, what's that? How does accountability uh, work? How how has that worked for you? Is there somebody who gives you a call occasionally, or, or was there somebody who coached you probably closer earlier in your formative years of ministry? Yeah. Um, I would say it probably came very late, honestly. Uh, you know, some of, and I'll talk a little bit more on some of the other questions. Some of my compulsive disorders <laughs> that have been misconstrued to be order <laughs> and uh, discipline um, uh, helped me early on to stay on point and, and to focus. But 
truthfully, accountability in ministry uh, was a godsend. And, and, and if I could get on a soapbox for just a second here, there's been a big movement towards mentorship, and rightfully so, within the apostolic movement and, and frankly, across corporate America. And, and I think we've got to be careful because we've got a, young, a lot of young men that are choosing their mentors. And, and I could miss something here, but I don't see that happening in the Bible. I, I don't see Elisha picking Elijah. I don't see Titus and, and, and Timothy picking Paul. I don't see the 12 picking Jesus. I think what we have to do, you know, I was, you know, I was probably in my late 30s when I said to a group of men, man, I just wish I had a mentor. I wish there was somebody in my life. And they were like, Jody, you're 39. Who are you mentoring? I think while we need mentors in our lives, and God has sent an elder, to answer your question directly, God has sent an elder into my life when my pastor became too old and his wife became too sick for them to stay in Titusville and help be a covering for me. God sent an elder to me that said, Jody, I've got a lot of things on my calendar. I've got a lot of things i got to do, but I feel something in the Holy Ghost kindred with you, and you need an elder in your life. And you call me, and I'll call you, and we'll stay in touch like this. I think while we need that person to step up in our life, I think we also need to be looking at who are we mentoring so that there's a young man somewhere that we can come into his life. That's a soapbox there. And that's, that is so um, important and critical. We think that we're not qualified to mentor until, you know, you have some sort of a name or, you know, uh, have, have preached a conference or something. But the fact of the matter is is that uh, everyone who has is serving selflessly in the kingdom of God uh, can reach out to somebody and help bring them into uh, bring them into a mentoring relationship. And it's a very intentional. It costs us time and effort and money, but uh, it's one of the important components, I think, that have been lacking. And, and our generation, I feel, is, is uh, making a resolve, high-level commitment to, to do more of that. And I think that's so very critical. Um, so what can you tell me about uh, Jesus Christ? What do you see from his life uh, as it relates to uh, personal discipline? Well, I mean, let's just, I mean, obviously his whole life, he personified personal discipline, which is, it's a tough order. We look at it and say, well, it was Jesus. Come on. Can we really compare to him? But, I mean, look at it right out of the gate, beginning his ministry, 40 days fasting. If that doesn't give us the, the early model of starting our ministry or starting a strategic plan with spiritual submission and fasting, I mean, nothing else does. He starts out with 40 days fasting. He deals with the three things that First John say are in the world. Lust of the flesh, he dealt with the bread. Lust of the eye, he dealt with the beautiful kingdoms on the horizon. The pride of life, he, he dealt with the temptation to show his miraculous powers and display. Same things that Eve faced in the garden. The food was good to eat. It was pleasant to look at. It was for personal wisdom. Jesus conquers that right out of the gate with fasting. The next thing we see him in his discipline, he's working continually for three and a half years with the most thick-headed disciples in the world. These guys don't get faith. They don't get kingdom. They don't understand the parables, the stories. They're, he's constantly having to deal with them, but he sticks with them. He, that's discipline to deal with people. You know, he asks the question, how long am I going to strive with you? But he does. He, he, he finishes what he starts with them. Um, maintaining an itinerant lifestyle. And I think we take it for granted 
that Jesus didn't have a home. He, he didn't pursue, pursue ownership of things and possession of material things. That's a discipline, demonstrating humility after his miracles. I and mean, let's face it, nobody ever obeyed Jesus. He did a miracle, and he told them, don't tell anybody. What they do? They went and told people. So what was the purpose of that being in Scripture, to teach us that people are going to disobey us? I think it's there to show us that Jesus showed humility after he demonstrated his gifts, his powers, his miracles, regardless, than look, instead of saying, look at me or give me notoriety, he said, don't tell anybody. Don't publish this. Wow. And wow. So even humility is a personal discipline. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Because let's face it, we all want to get credit for when we do something right. I mean, everybody. And Jesus didn't seek that. Um, how about enduring constant accusation, constant criticism, and constant ignorance from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin, and not bringing down fire from heaven on them? I mean, that's what I would do. <laughs> I mean, nonstop, he was accused, criticized, and, and dealing with ignorant people, and he never punished them uh, as they deserved to be. Um, this is the one that's big for me, and it's really my last point on this question. Surrendering his will to the will of the Father. Surrendering the will of the flesh to the will of the Father. You know, no place is that more evident than in Gethsemane. And I'll go a step further. I think it goes beyond just, you know, he showed personal discipline to endure an unjust suffering or punishment. Or he, you know, personal discipline more than just surrendering his life for a, a future population of people in the world that would be unthankful and millions who would even reject his sacrifice. I, I, I came across something here recently with my own pastoral staff here that I, that I saw Gethsemane in a different light. Back to the disciples. Here's Jesus in the final hours before he fulfills the cross destiny. And he's looking at these disciples who, who are not ready to spread the gospel. They don't understand the kingdom. They can't pray for an hour even when they see that Jesus is stumbling, falling down, and at his darkest hour they can't pray for an hour. And I wonder if part of Jesus' struggle in Gethsemane was they're not ready yet. And yet he gave up his will to have the best disciples on earth, which I struggle with, having the most productive pastors and team members, and saying, you know what, they're not ready, but is God ready? Is it God's time? That takes a great deal of personal discipline. And I think I wow. see Gethsemane in that light as well. Man, that's powerful. You know, and you look at the life of Jesus, and there's just no wasted movement. No. You know, he said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And then there is this activity, and everything has a purpose. He's very intentional. And uh, what a result from three and a half years. And I suppose his entire life represents his ministry. But in that final three and a half years of, of a recognized uh, a ministry, what what accomplishment? Yeah, yeah. And I might just add one little bullet to what you just said there, Aaron. Is that when he did these things, when he made something a teaching moment, or he made something a life changing moment, he wasn't afraid to tell them. He said, "Now I'm going to do this so that you might know that. I'm going to do this so that you might." And so I think sometimes. 
we need to let our teams just catch things and not over-explain, which I'm guilty of. But I think sometimes we need to go ahead and explain the discipline that we're that we're demonstrating. That's very good. Um, you were talking about accountability. You 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 had mentioned that you had a some accountability in your life. I know this is true for me, and I think this is probably true for you as well. I suspect that by creating expectations for your team, you're creating accountability for yourself as well. Do Amen. you find that? You, you create a culture of expectation that helps you to be accountable even to your own team? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think that uh, casting vision is, is a matter of personal discipline. Going beyond vision to take that vision into clear objectives, that's a, that's a matter of personal discipline. Taking those objectives... For instance, I might say an objective in 2013 is to reach a greater number of African-Americans or to reach the African-American community in my city. Well, that's not a goal. That's an objective. A goal is when I say I want to have a, an increase of 20% attendance or I want to have an increase of 40 more people go through my discipleship process. That would be a goal that is measurable. And I think that word measurable is key when you talk about casting vision and, and putting things out there and expectations, they, they've got to be measurable. Otherwise, right. you don't know. And then, and then when you go beyond the goal, you have to have a strategy. So, so the objective is the what. The goal is the how much or quantifiable, how many. The strategy is how, how we're going to go about that. And you put together a specific step-by-step -step strategy that has dates. And, and then you go to resources. How much is it going to cost? How many people is it going to be needed to get it done? This is where we really start to struggle when we start putting resources on strategies and then you know, putting it out on the calendar and, and actually yeah. putting it out there on the dates. I think you're exactly right. We cast and vision, but we don't cast out outline clear objectives and measurable goals sometimes. Yeah, I, I think that's it. we are we tend to be visionary as ministers, but um, that systematic and the infrastructure to see that thing happen sometimes we we struggle a little bit. And then uh, well, I noticed, you know, just uh, I've never been to your church, but I've called your office and um, I, I recognize that you have a well-oiled machine in, in Titusville. Um, you have structure and. Uh, there, that you know, there's a culture and a structure there that you expect, not only from yourself but from your whole team. And I'm sure that um, that must make a tremendous difference, as opposed to possibly maybe a, a minister or pastor who maybe doesn't keep any office hours of any sort, you know, or there's real no true channels of accountability for the team and for the staff. It just feels like. Um, that personal discipline is something that you've placed in the DNA of, of your team. It, it really is, Aaron, and it really kind of comes back to what you were saying a few seconds ago. You, you go back to Habakkuk, and you find him saying, I, I place myself on the wall. I'm a watchman. I've got a perspective that the people down in the city cannot see. That's vision. But then he says that the Lord tells him to write the vision, make it plain, so that those that run may read it. 
And, and so sometimes we're a visionary, but we don't have a scribe, or we're not able to write the vision. If you can't write the vision, get a scribe to help you write it. And, and it's got to be there so that the people that are running can read it. But you were talking about the structure of the church. I don't want to jump too far ahead. If you don't want to get to that right now, structure of leadership, we can defer. Um, we'll, we'll wait for, for a second, but I want to get to you now. I want to talk to you and, yeah. and you personally, because when I'm around you, I can't help but notice just the little things that lets me know that you, you, your life is one of, of a personal discipline. And um, how, how did this thing happen for you? Is it your personality? Because uh, I know that there are certain people, everything has to be in order, and it's just, they're just kind of predisposed to go in that direction, or was it developed? It, it was both for me because, um, you know, order and personal discipline is, is a very broad thing that requires a lot of things, and that's why I said at the outset of the call, I've got a lot of work to do. And, and I mean that because I do have a natural propensity towards what people would probably call OCD, um, I get a strange thrill from finishing or achieving things, projects or tasks. I love to finish. Um, but I'm also overly thorough and detailed. Now you sit there and go, well, there's the answer to the question. Your personality makes you orderly. No, because here's the thing. When you're a person that loves to finish and you're overly detailed and thorough, you hourglass you, 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 when you've got a lot of things going on, which pastors always have a ton of things happening simultaneously, you have a tendency to overload. You have a tendency to hourglass. And that's what I do because I want to finish everything. I want to do it right every time. And so that requires uh, the order to come in and prioritization to come in. And then the Lord has blessed me with a tremendous... Uh, disorder of having a pathetic short-term memory. I can remember, you know, from being three years old. I can remember things from being three, but I, I can't remember where I put my keys right now. So, uh, listen, you know, when you put all that together, you have a guy whose memory demands a to-do list, whose memory demands a to-do list, uh, demands calendars, demands automated reminders, and demands plans. But because I'm driven to achieve, I don't mind those tools. Where I probably have a leg up, I don't mind these tools in my life because I'm driven to achieve. Because I hate failure so much, I tend to wear both a belt and suspenders. Uh, and I don't mean that literally. Uh, I, I don't mean that literally, but I tend to have what NASA used to call redundancy. Um, yeah. a backup plan and a backup plan to the backup plan. And so, you know, there is a personality trait that lends me towards detail and lends me towards uh, finishing things, but my short-term memory and, uh, you know, that bogging down requires me to have priorities and to be disciplined to those priorities. So, I, I you know, yeah, there probably is a propensity in some degree, but you ask my wife, you ask my secretary, if it weren't for tools, and I recommend if you use an iPad, Wonderlist is free and awesome. Uh, use your calendars on your phone and your and your 
computer, put reminders. I put a reminder for every appointment that I have, a one-day reminder at the exact time of the next day's appointment. I put a one-hour reminder to make sure that I'm prepared for the meeting, and I put a 15-minute reminder because it takes me 15 minutes to get anywhere in my city, and I will get that, those three reminders. That, that tells you the OCD nature that I have, but it also tells you how much I need order and personal discipline. You know, I, I can personally relate uh, to what you're saying um, about that. And is this what you were re referencing when you said that sometimes your actions are misconstrued to be uh, personal discipline? It's probably more out of necessity. Is that what That's you're right. intending to say? That is absolutely right. It, it, oh, Jody's orderly. No, Jody's forgetful. That's, that's incredible. That's incredible. And so you uh, were honest with not only yourself but your whole team about where you were deficient. And they oh. built something to protect yourself. This, this happened yesterday. I had back-to-back -back appointments on Friday, and it required every appointment to go on time on schedule. Um, and one thing happened, the secretary got a call for an appointment that had not been on the schedule, and so I'm not sitting there looking at my calendar while I'm giving people eye contact, and I didn't know that there was a change to my calendar. She emailed it. I heard my phone buzz. I knew that something was going on, but I could not pull myself away from that eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball conversation to go check what it was. So I just plowed through. I talked to my secretary afterwards. Now, it would be very easy for me to say, what were you thinking? You can't add that appointment without – but what I said was, and it's the truth, I should check my phone. I should look at the calendar. I should have read all of these appointments before I even got started, and you did a great job of laying it out for me today. However, I need a follow-up phone call, and you know how forgetful I am, so please make that call. And that knowing your limitations, knowing your weaknesses, that is, the, to me, the first step in personal discipline. It, it reminds me of um, something that I did when I, I actually came to this church. I'm privileged to serve today. Um, one of the first meetings that I had with uh, the team was to tell them about what my strengths were and also my weaknesses. And I had that same conversation with our office manager as well because she needed to know um, where I was going to need a lot of help. And um, it's it's okay to be honest about, hey, you know, I really struggle in this area. So, and then to to build a team in a way that you know protects you, it's 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 a it's a liberating thing to be able to talk honestly uh, and transparently about where we're, we're lacking. So, um, you had mentioned of the business sector. Um, what did you learn about personal discipline from the? business sector. I'm always fascinated by ministers who have come out of the business sector. Um, I've, my whole life has been in, in ministry, and uh, I just see that these guys who have come out of the business sector have picked up some things that are just awesome. Uh, what, what did you learn from NASA? I would say that the first and foremost thing is real consequences. Real? <laughs> I guess so. And, and, and don't misunderstand, because I've got a good closing for this that makes all this NASA stuff the noise that it really is, okay? And I mean that. I left that job not looking in the rearview mirror. 
God allowed that to be. It was not my purpose. Uh, it was his purpose. But real consequences that you feel, that you taste, that you smell, were probably the best teachers for me in the NASA environment. At, at NASA, we learned every time we fail at personal discipline, seven astronauts die. Okay? Mm -hmm. And their families are devastated. And then the nation can't stomach the loss anymore, so the space shuttle program dies. And wow. you just that's the, that's the logic steps that take place. And so um, on a personal level, though, uh, that was a culture. You see T-shirts all over the place. Failure is not an option. That's a NASA phrase. Failure is not an option came directly from the Apollo program, lived through the space shuttle program, and uh, obviously did not fulfill its destiny. Um, because we have failed on, on several levels. But on a personal level, my first job was in contracts and procurement. So if, if I did not have personal discipline to follow the policy and the procedures to the letter, it would cost the agency millions of dollars, and it could lead to federal charges. That's pretty hefty discipline. Wow. On the media front, a lack of preparation could result in a global TV audience hearing me release inappropriate or erroneous information during a launch countdown. Um, and it's a five-hour countdown with uh, animation, interviews of astronauts. I'm conducting all this stuff that gets down to that last 10 seconds. But you can say something that is wrong, inappropriate, and you get hammered for it. Um, on the legislative side, I was at the, the table with the governor of the state of Florida trying to lay out space policy so Texas and Alabama wouldn't get all the space money. And if I misrepresented NASA, then and, and we got the wrong kind of legislation or the wrong language in the legislation, it could be jobs or millions of dollars that could have come to our state. So the bottom line is, you in the secular world, you answer to a ton of people with tangible consequences. And I think sometimes, I also was not raised by a preacher or a pastor. So I didn't understand the, the political workings or the ins and outs of a ministry home. My dad was a soul winner a Bible study teacher, a bus driver for the church. These were all grassroots type ministry. And so I never picked up any of those good or bad things that come from being raised in a ministry home. But while I recommend, you know, I recommend every minister at some point, we need to tell this to our Bible college kids, I recommend every minister at some point in their life be in an extended exposure to secular work. But, the secular consequences pale in comparison because the eternal consequences of saints and sinners that we must have the discipline to minister to. I mean, the truth is we lose souls for eternity when we lack personal discipline. Yes. If it were only, if the loss were only financial, and even for hospitals, it's a, you know their loss is physical, but we're talking about eternal souls. And um, you, did you immediately bring that connection into ministry uh, from your NASA experience? Did that just come along with it, or did that develop? No, I, I think it came automatically, and I, it, it kind of happened simultaneously because I was I was uh, it was 1998. I was still very much in the climb of my career at NASA when I was called to preach. And so my ministry began to develop while 
these things were being developed in me, which is an interesting dynamic. Um, and frankly, it got me to the place where I realized you have to make a choice. You're at a fork in the road. And the discipline that I developed on the job got me to the place where I finally made the decision to, to pull the trigger. And it was at the leadership of my senior pastor, I might add. I wasn't just jumping out there. But um, it, it happened simultaneously, really. It's a weird amalgam of, of both. Wow. Well, um, we have several questions uh, remaining, and we're running out of time. But uh, I do want to talk to you about what areas you have already kind of mentioned some areas where you had a personal struggle uh, and how you tackled the problem, but were there any other prominent areas of, of personal discipline that you struggled in um, in the outset that you had to deal with? Yeah, um, a, a few things. It, foremost, ensuring morning prayer uh, didn't get overtaken by morning exercise. Um, and, and not not being not finding it acceptable just to pray at night uh, or when the moment arose during the, the ministry day to start the day off. That took a great deal of discipline that required me to go to sleep earlier, change my con- entire reading process, um, staying up late in the quiet of the evening to get things done. It required me to go to bed sooner. It was a major discipline issue that I still have to deal with on a daily basis. Um, improper communication with my pastoral team, um, you know, not instructing their team members for them, not sending emails to their team members and copying them, but literally working through my pastoral staff and trusting them to get it done. That, take a, that took a great deal uh, of personal uh, discipline. And then finally, I would say knowing what a problem is and probably even knowing what the best solution is to the problem and getting face-to-face with the person that's, that's in that position, the leader that's in that position, and not accusing, but rather asking questions, leading them to their own decision and understanding rather than coming in to save time and saying, look, let's both face that you dropped the ball. This is why I think you dropped the ball, and here's what you need to do to fix it. Having the discipline to ask them questions and let them begin to deduce you know what needed to happen next. That was a huge discipline, and I, I think I'm I'm getting there, but I'm not you know I'm not quite there. Wow. Um, you're the the team that you're working with. How how have you encouraged uh, personal discipline? You keep office hours. Um, yeah. Uh, are you are you clear about? Uh, do you do you work with uh, playbooks? I mean, how how do you disseminate and and uh, delegate? information um, and, and responsibilities. I, I, it all starts with the vision, and if any of you guys have ever read the book Simple Church, this will sound very familiar to you. Our entire church structure, church strategy, church implementation, and accountability is based on the vision. It is all literally on the vision, or we don't do it anymore. And, and our vision is very simple. Our passion is to experience, live, and share, those are verbs, the power, truth, and love, those are the nouns or the core values of Jesus Christ every day. So power, truth, and love are the core values. Every member of our team understands that you've got to have all three in every ministry function we're doing. And so, but, but 
in that power, truth, and love, what do you do with those nouns? They have to have a verb or they're still. First you experience them. Next you live them. Finally you share them. So I literally have an experienced pastor, a live pastor, and a share pastor. And they are in charge of experiential ministries. The experienced pastor is your prayer, your worship, your drama, your media, your, all the stuff that has to do with the apostolic experience. The live minister is in charge of discipleship for children, youth, and adults. And the share minister is in charge of everything that has to do with outreach, inreach, or evangelism in the community. And they understand that their objectives for their ministry plan, they're only allowed to have three objectives for the year. They came to me the first year with like 10 or 15 objectives. I was like, you're going to fail. There's no way you're going to hit them. So we're only going to have a power objective, a truth objective, and a love objective in all of your ministries. And they develop that objective, and they put the strategies and the goals together uh, as, as it works. And so it just, re- it, it just constantly reiterates the vision, holds accountable to the vision. And then when we meet, the way that works out is I meet with uh, – I also have an executive pastor that is not above those men – but he integrates those men. And that, that has been a, that's only been a year now, and um, that's, taken some, that's going to take a great deal of work, but it, but it is bearing fruit. He makes sure that they all integrate into one big master plan, and he holds the monthly goals meetings, mainly because I would beat the snot out of them every month if I, if I attended that meeting. He's a kind but firm leader, and he works on how are you doing on your goals. Uh, and helping them get the resources they need to get their goals met. And I stay away from that meeting. I have not been to one because it would not be a good or holy thing. Um, I'm too driven towards those things. But um, that, that, that approach is how we, we work on it. Uh, I meet with my executive pastor every week and talk with him every day. On Monday, we kick that off, and we begin the tasking, the planning for the week, look back at last week, look ahead to next week. Um, I meet with my pastors once a month for an hour and a half to two hours, one time a month, and face-to-face, I don't, and not as a cluster, face-to-face. And then I meet with all of them. They meet in a goals meeting with, with our executive pastor that I don't attend, and I meet with all of them once a month, um, they, their wife, and their children, we have a, a Sunday lunch that we do. And that Sunday lunch promotes fellowship and unity, but it also promotes a level of ministerial and family accountability. Uh, we rotate from house to house, and it has to be cheap food, no big, grandiose desserts and so forth. And then, ultimately, um, we start the planning for our next calendar year in September, uh, they draft their ministry plan with those objectives in September. I look at it with them, and in our monthly meeting in October, uh, I review that and compare it against the vision, tell them where we need to tighten up. Uh, by November, that plan is done. Uh, all of them submit their plans to our executive pastor. He rolls them together into an integrated master plan, and um, in that integrated master plan, he uh, – he then puts it on the calendar, makes sure there's no overlaps, and we work that plan at a leadership summit in November. We cast that vision to the entire team and then work that plan throughout the rest of the uh, into the next coming year. That's a mouthful, just, but that, that's how we do it. 
And I just want to observe and make commentary that um, here's a pastor who I have asked a question, and he has explained to me on a very global scale um, what his vision is, and then he's also uh, communicated the process. And that vision is portable, and all of the leaders that he's working with they understand that vision, and then there, there's communication, and he's explained how all those things happen. So, Brother Wells, what do we say to the home missionary pastor who's on the call today, and he's listening to what you're talking about, and he's, he's hearing you talk about executive pastors and, and colleagues, and um, what, what can you say to him to encourage him to begin the journey of personal discipline? Be focused on the one thing or the two things that you need to be doing right now. Um, when I came on in 2006 as a pastor to a senior pastor, we had 60 people. There were no preachers in our church except for me. Um, there, were, there was no leadership structure at all. So I want to be clear, this is not a system that was a plug-and-play or a takeover. It was something that had to be built from the grassroots and with people that a lot of folks would have said they're not qualified for the positions. Um, I don't recommend compromising on that. I don't recommend jumping out into some huge, top-heavy structural team. I recommend getting a clear vision that says, okay, here's the vision for our church going forward for the next umpteen years, but here's where that vision is supposed to be accomplished this year. What is the reality of what I can accomplish this year? And stick to that. Don't be driven or peer pressured or guilted into going outside of that. God gives that to you. Stick to it, and then solicit people to help you with that phase of the vision. Um, and, and you will build that team, and you will build success. When you try to hit too many of those things too early, too soon, so you can have a fancy slide presentation to the church, or so you can take it to your next general conference to show your buddies, you're, you're destined to kill you and the, and the team because you won't accomplish it all. You need to have very few, very clear and specific objectives that relate to your vision for this year. Take it one step at a time um, and only equip for what you're doing right now and possibly for the next year. Don't get too far ahead of yourself. That's what we did. Um, now we have seven preachers in this church in the last five years, um, homegrown. Uh, there's a couple of transfers that came in from work. Uh, but but primarily homegrown guys, um, leaders that we grew at home, which I think are always the best. Um, and it, it, it you just patience, man, patience, 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 and a good wife. Uh, yes, I, I just want to mention that um, uh, Jody is very uh, committed to his family, and in all of this productivity, uh, his family and his children are not lost. They are. He uh, has a dedicated and sacred time for his family. And uh, in all of our um, personal discipline, we cannot lose sight of of the family. And, and that, as you mentioned earlier, you know, that time that we carve out for God, that's so critical. Um, we're, we're out of time, but I just wanted to ask you, if you would just give us a challenge. Maybe there's somebody on the call today, and over the years, Maybe some years have slipped by, and there are some real um, dis personal discipline issues 
they're just struggling with the whole idea and maybe they're a little bit disheartened at the very idea that, you know, structure is even any, something that, that they can work in. Um, what can you say to maybe somebody today who's listening to you, maybe even feel a little overwhelmed, um, just out, it's like, you know, I'm listening to to Jody and he's just out of my league and I, I, I just wish I could get up before 10 o'clock in the morning, you know, and I'm always uh, uh, getting ready at the last second for things. And what, what can you say to that person? Very clearly two things. Number one, one of the fruit of the spirit, not the fruit of the flesh or the works of the flesh. In Galatians, one of the fruit of the spirit is self-discipline, self-control. And we ought to seek that fruit. We ought to actually have faith and believe that the Holy Ghost can add this to our life not just like adding water, but that it would do a work in us. And, and so regardless, don't, don't, there's no hopelessness, there's no helplessness. It's just the Holy Ghost can affect this work in me. Just like we believe wholeheartedly that tongues is the initial evidence of the Holy Ghost, we must believe that self-discipline, personal discipline, self-control, those things, that is also an evidence downstream that we are filled with the Holy Ghost and trust that the Holy Ghost can and will and is doing that. But the last thing I would say, because then even then you say, oh my Lord, does that mean I don't have the Holy Ghost? No, this is the thing. And, and I wish this could be sound more positive, but it is meant to be very positive. Personal discipline today, the day the trumpet sounds or the day you draw your last breath, personal discipline will always be a struggle. And that is winning. It's not constantly not conquering it and looking back on it. The fact that you are in the struggle, the struggle is worth it, and the fact that you are in the struggle for it means you are winning. That's awesome. I appreciate your time, and uh, I know that uh, you know, you're, you're an inspiration to a lot of people, and uh, I have a great admiration for your ministry, the work that you're doing, and I want to thank you for leading the charge and uh, helping us to understand that um, we can be more than just a, uh, a pastor. We can be uh, a pastor who's committed to excellence and we can um, be men of personal discipline. I just appreciate you championing that for us, among many other things that you represent to us today. So today, Lord, we just pray that your blessing would be with Brother Wells, that you would prosper him and the work in Titusville. Thank you, God, for his great example. And I just pray, Lord, for unprecedented revival in his life, and we pray blessing upon his family as well today. And we pray for every caller, everyone who's going to listen to this on archive. We just pray, God, that every man would take this conversation to heart and realize that you were a man of discipline, Father. You showed us what a focused life can do. And I just pray, God, that you'll give us grace. Your word declares to us that when we're weak, you are strong. We're making a commitment to redouble our efforts in this area. And, Lord, we're up for the challenge. And we understand, God, it will be a struggle. But, Father, we also know that it is worthwhile. It is a worthwhile undertaking. And we thank you for the call that is on our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.